I don't think I handle pain okay, that well. I got to say this because I keep meaning to say it and I don't say it and then I forget and then I think, oh my God, I got to tell you that and then I forget and then now I just remembered it again. <laughs> And here we are. That's what, what you missed was on Glee. It that I was going to tell <laughs> I you. I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. We just would like to remind you that none of the things that we say should be taken as official recommendations. We try to know what we're talking about, but this podcast ultimately represents the opinions of a couple yahoos with master's degrees. <laughs> it's mainly for entertainment. Right. So if you feel that you need help with your own mental health, we encourage you, please talk to your very own doctor or your very own counselor. Get real help. And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones. Hello and welcome to Freudian Sips, the podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. Hello. Hello. How are you today, Mom? I've had a hard day. How about you? <laughs> pretty good. Your day's I'm much better. Good. It's it's turning around, isn't it's it? It's fine. I'm a glass and a half into champagne, so I'm feeling We are having good. champagne today for our beverage. Beverage. When we passed our test, which if you haven't listened to our last episode, we passed a big test. We bought two bottles of champagne we and we drank one of them and then we're like, hey, turns out we don't like champagne. <laughs> so now we're drinking the other bottle I think of this champagne. Is better than the last one. I agree. What was the difference? It was just that that one was pink and this one's white. It was the same brand, yeah, wasn't it's it? Misca- it's the same brand. Yeah. They're both Moscato. The other one was what? strawberry moscato yeah maybe we just weren't in a good place for it mm-hmm. today we're in a better place to accept the flavor let the moscato sink in just let it sink in baby uh. <laughs> i don't think you're supposed to do that with champagne good lord where were you raised in a barn i know i raised you but <laughs> were, what, were you in the barn when i wasn't looking <laughs> whenever you weren't here Goodness. i ran to the barn and practiced burping we do actually have a barn in our we yard so barns. i think you probably were in the barn when i wasn't looking belching and being all savage like if we were drinking beer i would kind of expect that kind of behavior but we're drinking champagne There's out of so beautiful little bubbles. flutes look at them though well i guess that's what's causing the Gas. flatulation <laughs> <laughs> Is it flatulation when it's I don't think it so. comes this way? I don't think so. Oh, it has so. to go that way. Buildup of gas. Any. Hello. Editing Anna here. Do I sound different? Well, get used to it because this episode has technical issues galore. You may have noticed that the episode audio just cut out. Not sure what happened, but even after we fixed it, turns out the recording doesn't sound like it normally does. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that until I started editing, which I began doing while out of town. I am actually currently recording this while out of town, so I don't have my regular mic, so that's why I sound like this. So on the bright side, the rest of the episode doesn't sound quite this bad, but it will still sound different, so prepare yourself. Okay, so gird your loins, let's get back to the content. Can you edit that out? Hello, welcome back. (laughs) Slight technical difficulty, don't know what happened. Can you you just edit it? Yeah. Okay. So, okay, before we get into the meat of the episode, I do feel like we should mention our sticker plug. because We haven't talked about that for a while. It really has been quite a while. Um, so if you are fairly new around here, you may not be aware 
that if you leave us a review and then you email us at freudiansipspod at gmail.com and you like have a picture of the review and you include your address, we will send you a sticker free of charge mm-hmm. because we would love it if you got a reward for giving us a positive review. And we would love to hear your review. So it's That's like true. a win-win. It's a win-win. It's a win-win, which is always it's a good. symbiotic relationship here. <laughs> Like, we've had several lovely people review us who haven't sent us our addresses, and I always feel kind of bad, like, we could be sending you a sticker, and we don't know how. Yeah, so please remember to send your address to us. Email your address so we can send you a sticker. Yeah. And a thank you in in the envelope. Yeah, if you're listening and you enjoy what you're hearing, go to Podchaser or go to Apple Podcasts. If they leave a negative review, can they still get a sticker? That's a great question. Would they want a sticker if they left us a negative review? That's a good question. Yeah, we'd like send them a sticker and they just like rip it up into tiny pieces because they hate us so much. Well, if that's therapeutic for them, maybe we should do that. Whatever, yeah. Yeah. Whatever's going to help you, man. We're all about helping you, <laughs> sisters. That's right. It's, it's our call Whatever's gonna to help good. people. <laughs> all right. That was the only pre-roll I have. What are we talking about today? I cannot believe that we have not talked about this until now. It's a long time coming. I cannot. I, what were we thinking? Were we not? Were we too close to see it? I think this is one of those ones that we feel there's too much. <laughs> we mm-hmm. feel like it's too important and we didn't want to do it <laughs> we've done a wow few that's of those. that's quite a build-up for this yeah so today we're actually talking about a person we are which kind of changes the format of the conversation a little bit and we are talking about carl rogers today yes who is the creator of client-centered therapy Mm-hmm. He's a humanist extraordinaire. He's our boy. He is our boy. Ann and I, we've talked about many times on different episodes that we are both humanists mm-hmm. and we are both client-centered therapists. And they're person-centered, person-centered. client-centered. Yeah, feels a little better. But we really should have probably talked about Rogers before now. But, but yeah, today's we, the day. Today yeah. is the day. We've thrown around that humanist turn a couple times and we haven't fully explored that. So today we're going to fully explore that. Right. So when he first started with it, he called it, it was client-centered first. And then it became person-centered. But one of the things that I read was he took the emphasis off of the idea of patient. Yes. Because he he, changed the word to client. Right. He didn't feel that it was appropriate for a counselor, for a therapist to call their client a patient. Because that implied like they don't have agency in the process. Right. And it was like the therapist was going to fix them. Mm -hmm. And that's not at all the way Rogers looked at therapy. So that's why he called them clients. And then he made it even softer by calling it person-centered. Well, he also made it person-centered because he kind of widened the theory a little bit. But we'll get to that. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Just me jumping ahead. So can we talk about his life and who he was? And that's that's always kind of your shtick. Yeah, can I do that? Can I, mother, may I? You may. Do history. You may do history. Dun, da, 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 dun, da, da, da. We haven't done that for a while I was going to edit it in, yeah. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, so we look at Carl Rogers and we should, it's important to know, know his full name, which is Carl Ransom Rogers. His middle name is Ransom? Isn't that cool? How did I not see that? Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> I, such a cool name. I know, right? Sounds like a Western character. Or like a, a detective, you know what I mean? Carl Ransom Carl Rogers. Carl Ransom Rogers is on the case. 
So Carl Ransom Rogers was born January 8, 1902 in Oak Park, Illinois. Illinois represents shout out. Which is nowhere near us. It's a suburb of Chicago. So it's like six hours away from us. But it's like a different state, but that's all right. Yeah, we're not by Chicago. We're not the cool kids. Mm-mm. We are everywhere else in Illinois. <laughs> So he was the fourth of six kids, so middle, mm-hmm. middling. Middle-ish. You want to talk about being a middle child, how that might have affected him? Mm, very much so. Mom herself is a middle child. Yes. We like to keep peace. We like everyone to get along. I think that goes with It does like, fit with this theory. Yeah. Yeah. He liked it. He just wanted everyone to be like, respectful can we, can of each other. Can we all just chill? Can, can we, we all just get along? Just love each other, man. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, exactly. Yes. His parents were Walter, who was a civil engineer and congregationalist as a religious affiliation. Yes. And Julia, who was a housewife and a devout Baptist. And I mentioned those things because they will be important later. Uh-huh. Carl was an intelligent child. He excelled at school. Will we ever have a psychologist who we talk about their history and we're like, they were dumb. They were hard. They, they had were a hard time stupid. <laughs> Like, I saw somewhere where he was reading by like age three or something. Yeah, he yeah. he could read like way before kindergarten. Actually, that led to him skipping kindergarten and first grade. When he started school, he started in second grade. He would have been a little bitty guy. He would have been He would have been a little tiny, I know. But honestly, I couldn't find much about his schooling after that. So it's just like, he's smart. That's all you need. To, he was, he read so good. He read so good. Anyway. He didn't get to finger paint, which is a hard problem to have. He didn't get nap times. Yeah, he missed all the fun stuff, man. Missed all the good parts of Go right to second grade, you go right into the tough stuff. Doing like math and stuff. Yeah. Awful. Yeah, I couldn't find much about his educational career before like college, but I will mention that when he was 12, his family moved away from Oak Park, which is, like I said, it's by Chicago. It's a suburby, suburban is a word that already exists for that. <laughs> but I like suburbia. Suburbia area. <laughs> I think Chicago. it should be suburbia. That's much more fun than suburban. <laughs> so it was a suburbia area of Chicago. They moved to a more rural area. And I will also mention that his education and upbringing were really strict and they were really religious. That's kind of where his parents being religious came in, that he was raised in that environment. He was an altar boy for most of his life. As a result, he was kind of an isolated kid. He was really independent. He was very disciplined and very moral. Uh, so so that was part of his upbringing, was part of his development. And he actually developed an early appreciation for the scientific method, especially as it was used in the real world. Like mm-hmm. not just in the context of science, but just generally. How it fit in the world. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So since they moved to a more rural area, He actually looked into agriculture as a career at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And once he- Shout out for Wisconsin. Wisconsin-Madison. I feel like, was that Virginia Satir? Was she in Wisconsin-Madison? Probably. That sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. I want to say I'm right. We're going to say I'm right. We're going to say you're at least- Don't tweet me if I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Only tweet me if I'm right. As he was in the university, he switched more to history and religion. Actually, at age 20, he went to Peking, China for an international Christian conference. And following that, he kind of began to doubt his religion. Mm -hmm. He began to kind of doubt what he believed. 
doubt his affiliation, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that would be a struggle for the next couple of years. But he still graduated with a degree in history. And then he enrolled in the Union Theological Seminary in New York City. So around this time, he also attended a, sem uh, a seminar, seminary, seminar. Are those words connected? <laughs> Question. <laughs> He went to a seminar at the seminary. Which While I, he was in seminary. I have a question, though. Like, So he was questioning his faith. He's questioning his beliefs. Right. But then he enrolled in a seminary. Well, seminary, it he doesn't was, necessarily... It was not to be a minister? He well, was it not... was, actually. The seminar that he went to was entitled, Why Am I Entering the Ministry? Which uh, you would think he would go to that before entering before a he, seminary. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> he did not. Yeah, before you take the lead, <laughs> test the waters. Right. And in fact... All the seminar encouraged him to do was to not be in the ministry. Whoops. So yeah, actually sometime after this, he became an atheist. He was described as an atheist for a long time. Eventually, a little later on in his career, he became described as an agnostic, which mm -hmm. if you don't know the difference, an atheist believes that there is no God, there is no higher power. An agnostic believes that there is some kind of higher power, but we don't know what it is. Right. So something's out there and just don't know what, that kind of thing. I think that was significant for me when I was reading about him because... To me, a lot of Roger's theories and the and just the way he talks and the therapy that he created, basically, or that he built, to me is, it, it, because I'm looking at it from my perspective, from right. my spirituality. You're looking at it from your frame. Right. So from my perspective, I see it as being very loving and... Christian. Christian. Okay. I didn't want to use the word, but I guess yes, that's you the did. only word I did. Right? <laughs> But more general than that, even, I mean, it's just about being kind to each other and being loving. It's right. even broader than that. But of course, yes, it is Christian. But so when I was reading about how he did identify kind of throughout agnostic. his adult life as yeah. agnostic, it kind of surprised me. But then it, I did also read that later in his life that he kind of came back around to just the idea that there's something even maybe a little stronger than agnostic, where it's like... I guess I'll cross that out of my things. notes or whatever. No, don't cross it off. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Stealing my thunder. But yeah, he did... The spirituality thing was something that he went back and forth on throughout his life, which honestly, most people do. Well, anybody who thinks about it. Exactly. Who doesn't just take it and, and do what people tell him to do. Right. And it's interesting that you say that, that his theory was... First of all, I do think that's how we look at it, what framework we're looking at it. Right. But also, he grew up in a really religious household, and you can't totally wipe your slate clean from that. Right. So I'm right. sure some of those influences came in while he was creating his theory on how people work. Right. I mean, again, this is why I say this every single episode we talk about a person. That's why we talk about the history, because no psychologist makes a theory in a vacuum everything that they've experienced comes in as part of that theory right and he would love that you're saying that <laughs> carl is up there in heaven going wow anna that's like my theory right heaven, there agnostic heaven <laughs> there are agnostics have heaven neighborhoods <laughs> yeah. i don't know <laughs> not the gated community we'll, of heaven we'll, but we'll like leave that to god okay but yeah he's i think he'd be into that holistic thing yeah so after a couple of years of being in the seminary, he left and instead got into Teachers College, Columbia University, where he got a Master's of Arts in 1928 and a PhD in 1931, which is a quick turnaround, isn't it? Yeah, maybe that's pretty quick. He was determined. Yes, very smart, reading, lots of reading. So, and he could do that. That's all I know about his education. <laughs> he could do He's reading. a really good reader. He's a really all good reader. His life. PhD, great reading, cool. <laughs> got it. 
So while he was here, he took a course taught by uh, psychologist Lita Stetter-Hollingworth, who I'd never heard of before, but she was kind of a pioneer in psychology, especially child psychology. Oh. There's a lot of child psychologists in this story. Oh, huh, that's um, interesting. And it kind of made Carl realize that psychology was a really good way to study life's questions, but not subscribe to a specific religious doctrine while he did it. It okay. was a more secular way to answer the questions that he still wanted to answer, but not necessarily have to look at it from a spiritual or religious point of view. Okay. So that's kind of how he got onto that track. And while working on his doctorate, he was the director of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in Rochester, New York. Again, I go back to it's interesting how many psychologists we've talked about that have been working with kids at some point in their career. Mm -hmm. Like that apparently is a much more common thing. Or maybe working with kids is a really easy way to develop a theory of personhood. I don't know. Is that easy to look at like the development and... And therefore look at the outcome? Maybe. Maybe so. That makes sense to me. So post-grad, he lectured at the University of Rochester and wrote his first book, The Clinical Treatment of the Problem Child, in 1939. Again, from his experience working with troubled kiddos. And around this time, he also began constructing client-centered therapy. This was when he started to kind of assemble Decide that. how he was going to do that. Right. Yeah. He was really inspired in this by an Austrian psychoanalyst named Otto Rank who was a close colleague of Freud's for like 20 years, but was a post-Freudian actually in practice. So okay. kind of not like neo-Freudian, but not quite Freudian. Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Freud limbo. <laughs> and especially Carl was inspired by Otto Rank's student, J. Jesse Taft. She was a social work educator and authority on child placement and adoption, which mm -hmm. is kind of cool. You don't think of there being adoption specialists that far back, Yeah, do you? exactly. Because this was like 1940s. Right. Early. Earlier than And that. especially a woman. There were a lot of women in this story, actually. A woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So by 1940, he was a professor of clinical psychology at Ohio State University. He hopped all around. He's, <laughs> he was like Illinois, Wisconsin, and then New York, and then Ohio. He was just, mm -hmm. he wasn't happy in one place. But while he was here, he wrote a second book, which was called Counseling and Psychotherapy, which I think we had to buy for one of our classes. Sure sounds familiar. Yeah. Although that's a pretty generic name, right? Yeah, that's a pretty... Like 20 books like, like that. I want to write a book about <laughs> psychology. What should I call it? <laughs> and from there, he kind of rocketed his way to the freaking top. This guy had upper management written all over him. By 1945, he was invited to set up his own counseling center at the University of Chicago. Wow. And then only two years later, he was elected president of the American Psychological Association, the APA. Yeah, if you have any association with psychology at all, you know the APA is the big dog. <laughs> the biggest of the dogs. Indeed. And at his counseling center, he began studies to determine the effectiveness of his methods and the approach of, of client-centered therapy. I didn't look up specific studies, but I know that client-centered therapy and humanism in general has been studied a lot and has been found to be the most effective basis for therapy, basically. Generally speaking, yes. Yeah. So these findings that he did in his counseling center appeared in the next few books he wrote, Client-Centered Therapy in 1951 and Psychotherapy and Personality Change in 1954. 
his students at this university also went kind of buck wild when it comes to like creating offshoots of his therapy. They just took his ideas and ran with them. So they established a lot of things that were vaguely related, like hmm. Thomas Gordon, who established the Parent Effectiveness Training, PET movement, hmm. and Eugene T. Gendlin, who developed Focusing, which was based on the Rogerian listening technique that was part of his theory. Right. So just people were like, that's cool. But I want it to be a little different, and I'm gonna name it my own thing. There's a lot of that in psychology. There is so much of that yeah. in psychology. We've talked about that before. That that yes. it's like a little bit different, and then you call it tweak your it own a little thing. bit, and then yeah. slap your name on it, baby, yeah. and then you get your own Wikipedia page. <laughs> You're a winner. <laughs> and then together with Abraham Maslow. <laughs> who is also our boy. We've talked about Maslow. Episode 24. He created humanistic psychology. They both created humanistic psychology by working together. Can't joining, we all just get along? <laughs> joining in a common goal. Right. Humanistic psychology kind of reached its peak in 1960s-ish. That was when it was hot. The hot thing. The hot new thing. Humanistic psychology. And also during this time, he wrote probably his most famous book, On Becoming a Person. That's a great book. He wrote like 19 books. He was prolific. I was just going to say, he was prolific. He wrote a lot of books. Also, he was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Also, he was a critic of McCarthyism. Oh, really? In the United States, yes. Okay. Sometime in the height of humanism also, he switched to teaching at the University of Wisconsin. So he bounced back to Wisconsin. He left there in 1963 to become a resident at the Western Behavioral Sciences Institute in La Jolla, California. La Jolla? Mm, that sounds good to me. La Jolla. So he ended up in California? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he actually left the Behavioral Sciences Institute to found the Center for Studies of the Person in 1968. He got he got bored with things after like two years and was like, I'm going to go make my own thing, actually. <laughs> I haven't... I haven't established something in a while. I think I'll go establish a new center. I wonder what that really, though, that does say about his personality, that he was an overachiever. He he very much was. He had a lot of irons in the fire, Mm -hmm. a lot of things to do. He founded a lot of things. I'm not just saying that. Like, I skipped a few things. I also skipped a few of, like, councils that he was involved in. Right, right. Probably the Illuminati, like, couldn't get him because he was too busy. (laughs) Did you say, was he married? I don't know. I don't, I don't know remember either. I didn't that. see anything about it. He had a daughter, so maybe he was married. I didn't see anything about, hey, Carl Rogers' wife. What's up, man? <laughs> Sorry I didn't mention you. I don't know your name. I, I have to say that in all the reading that I did, I didn't read anything about his family. I mean, I did about his family of origin, but I didn't see anything about his family as uh, an adult. Yeah, he married Helen Elliott okay. in 1924. That was oh, pretty wow. early. Yeah. Holy cow. Helen. Man, she kept a low profile, huh? <laughs> Wikipedia didn't did they even stay mention married? her name. Did they stay married? They probably did. Just quietly, she was in the background. The wind beneath his wings. <laughs> Behind every great humanist, there is Helen Elliot. <laughs> oh, he had a son, too. Oh, my God. I didn't... <laughs> hey... So I should probably mention. Yeah, tell us about his family. Yeah, Helen died in 1979, which was before, a few years before he died. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But yes, they were married until she died. 1979. Wow. I know, it's a shame, right? But she lived a long life. They lived a long life together. Yeah. Yeah. They were married, what? What is that? 55 years? Good Lord. (laughs) 
<laughs> How could you even? How can you marry to one <laughs> What person? is that about? <laughs> Apparently he was a good listener. <laughs> Imagine how easy it was to get chicks when your whole theory on life is listening. Men, pay attention. Yeah, but uh, Homeboy was busy. He was just founding things left and right. Married, had kids, had a family. Yeah. Dragged them across I the was country, say, apparently. They went with him. Yeah, holy cow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he remained a resident of California until his death, actually. But that being said, a lot of his final years were spent doing work abroad. He often went to different countries to basically apply his theory. Again, it's kind of like applying the scientific method to quote-unquote real life. He wanted to apply his theory, and my theory, speaking of theories, is that he called it person-centered because he wanted it outside of the counseling context. Right. He often tried to apply it to situations of political oppression, social conflict, stuff like that. Um, He went to Belfast, Ireland, and he worked with Protestants and Catholics, which, if you don't know Irish history, Protestants and Catholics were at war for a long time. Like, the Irish flag is is green and orange, and there's white in the middle. Green is for Catholics, and orange is for Protestants. And the white means, like, we need to unite. Please stop fighting. Mm. So he wanted to work with that conflict. In South Africa, he worked with the racial tension between black people and white people, among several others. He, right. he went all over the world applying his theory to conflicts of, like, we a could grand use him scale. right now, couldn't we? I, I literally have that in my notes. Carl, come, come back. back. <laughs> we I need to like have, we like have a seance. Stuff. Let's get yeah. a Ouija board. <laughs> let's not. But <laughs> as if 2020 wasn't bad enough, let's do a Ouija board. <laughs> yeah, but it's right over the top. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, for these two things that I just mentioned, the uh, Ireland and the South Africa instances, he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 1987. But I want you to guess who won it instead. 1987. Yeah. Mother Teresa? I don't know. Yes! Is that right? Yes! How did you know that? Oh my god! I thought that was going to be a gotcha for sure, but you nailed it. Thank you. First try. Thank you very much. Wow. Wow. I can't tell you why I knew that. It just came from the recesses of my... Came from Mother Teresa. (laughs) She delivered it unto you. I do like Mother Teresa You do like Mother Teresa. Uh, Between 1974 and 1984, he worked with his daughter, Natalie Rogers. I have to add this. I think if it was up to Mother Teresa, she would have let him have it. They would have been like, no, you have it. Actually, the two of them together would be like that, wouldn't they? It's okay. You have it. No, no, no. One of the articles I read in preparation for this was like comparing and contrasting their theories on life basically mm-hmm. yeah so yeah sorry yeah. i didn't mean to interrupt you but i was just having this picture okay. of mother Teresa standing there saying it's okay Carl. it's it's one of those you take it it's one of those like you hang up first no you hang up yeah first. Like, <laughs> you have the nobel peace prize no you have the nobel peace prize we should share it we, we should share it they break it in half <laughs> you know that scene in mean girls where she breaks the crown it's that but with the nobel peace yeah. prize I don't know what a Nobel Peace Prize looks like. Me so neither. Is, like, is it a medal? Is it a big glass it's a, thing? It's a medal, right? It's a medal, I think. Yeah, you probably couldn't break it in half. One of you take the ribbon. That's what Futurama looks. I don't know. <laughs> that's our reference that's point. Like. That's really honestly. Futurama's, Futurama's my reference for a lot of things. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the last several years of his life, he worked with his daughter, Natalie Rogers, and several other psychologists. 
I didn't write down their names. Sorry, but there were two women and one man. So Carl was equal opportunity. He obviously dude. was. Yeah. yeah. And they worked to establish residential programs across the U.S., Europe, Brazil, Japan. And these were person-centered approach workshops that focused on like communication across cultures, personal growth, social change. Again, just really expanding that theory to be outside of the counseling context, to mm-hmm. really apply it to general life. And let's go back to the spirituality thing. Like you were mentioning this before, a colleague of Carl's who worked with Carl in his final 10 or so years wrote about Carl later on that in his later years, Carl's openness to experience led him to acknowledge that there was a dimension that he described as mystical and transcendental. That's the exact quote that I had. I mean, fair so enough. Yeah. Sorry. I have to get some more. You're gonna, oh, you're gonna, oh, no, 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 no. <gasps> oh, just a little. Just a little Perfect drip. Pour. A little drip right there. So I laid down. Not a good chance. <laughs> She's rubbing the champagne into the uh, fabric. It's fine. <laughs> he described this realm uh, beyond scientific psychology and began to call it the indescribable, the spiritual. So, yeah, he was basically, which again, okay. Isn't that just agnosticism? That's agnosticism. Like, there's something. It's mystical. Yeah, but I think... My personal belief is that he, he knew there was more. Going it was, it was more of specific. a spiritual yeah. thing. I think he knew. I think so, yeah. He was heading in that direction. He's so. like, I gotta get right <laughs> whatever it is. Whatever's gonna meet me on the other side, I better be right with it. Unfortunately, in 1987, he suffered a fall that fractured his pelvis, though he used Life Alert to get paramedics, um, which is the only time I've ever heard Life Alert used in an actual serious context, I will say that. He did have a successful operation to fix his pelvis, but unfortunately, after that, his pancreas failed, and then a few days later, he died of a heart attack. So he died well, on... Well, how old would he have been? He was 85 when he died. So okay. February 4th, 1987, unfortunately, he died. Yeah, because we could really use him right now. Yeah, man. Carl, come back. Could really use your buddy. Yeah. He was a good boy. <laughs> He's a good boy. Good boy. We liked him. So, Mom, tell us more about the person-centered approach. Shall I do that? Shall Please I tell do. You? Anna and I were talking before we started that maybe one of the reasons that we feel like we put this off or whatever is because it's so close to what we do. I mean, it's exactly what we do. And so it feels, I don't know, maybe too close or something. I think one of the significant things before I even say anything about his theory is that basically one of Roger's main ideas about life is that people are created basically good, that we are good at our core, which is kind of different than what maybe some other people at the time had thought. Yeah, we talked, I think... We've talked about how one of the humanistic cores is moving away from like psychoanalysis and stuff focuses on the illness. Right. Humanism focuses on mental health rather than mental illness. Right. Right. On the positive. Yeah. Exactly. And so when Carl first started, he actually used the word non-directive. Mm-hmm. counseling or non-directive therapy. Yeah, I did. As I was researching, I was like, Carl, pick a name and I stick know. with it, yeah. dude. <laughs> yeah, so his first, at first he called it non-directive therapy because you have to remember that he was kind of following the whole Freudian, you know. Which very, is, Freudian therapy is extremely directive. Right, Freudian right. therapy, that's why 
in old timey depictions of it. Old like the, <laughs> you, the person lays on the couch and then the psychologist is or counselor psychiatrist is, yeah. is sitting behind them and just very A, B, C, D. And it's very like they're the authority. Yes. Yeah. And Rogers didn't want that. He wanted mm-hmm. it to be more like a journey together kind of thing. And so he did then rename it client centered and then very quickly renamed it again, as Anna said, um, person centered. So one of the really big important parts of his theory is that the counselor themselves needs to have certain attributes. Right. And that... Um, it's not just a job. It's right. It's a, a personhood. Exactly. And so the the counselor or the therapist, whichever you prefer to call us. Yeah. <laughs> um, us specifically. There are three core things that, that a counselor needs to have. And the first one is empathy and Duh. unconditional positive regard for yes. the client. And the third thing is to be genuine or to be authentic and to be congruent. And I'm going to, we're going to go over all each of those things. So, so let's start. First of all, we talked a lot about empathy in the last couple of episodes. Yeah. Because when we talked about uh, narcissistic personality, and then we talked about, we um, talked about how we can build empathy as a skill. So according to Rogers, that is a significant part of being a good therapist, a good counselor Mm -hmm. is to have that good empathy with your client. Right. But unconditional positive regard is right there, right next door. (laughs) And that's that idea that when when a client comes in to see a counselor, that they need to feel that they will not be judged for anything that they say, which is a challenge for the counselor because counselors are people too, and and we have our own biases. And so that was one of the things I asked Anne if she had watched any of the videos about Carl Rogers. If if you've never, Sipsters, if you've never seen him speak, there there are lots of things um, online on YouTube, of course. Because really Um, it wasn't that long ago that he was actively working on. Where he's talking about empathy, and he's, in one of those interviews, I saw him say that someone came into his office who was like a soldier, like a warrior. Mm -hmm. And that goes against, as he was sharing, it went against his very center, you know, because he's such a peacemaker kind of person. Conscientious objector type. Exactly. So he said in this interview, right away, I was aware of my own bias about him being a a soldier. And I had to conquer that to give him this unconditional positive regard. Because if not, then the client doesn't feel safe to go to a place where they can truly start to search for their own self-actualization. Because even if you don't say anything like a person comes in they're talking about stuff even if you're like "Ooh, i don't agree with that mm-hmm. they can tell right so you don't just need to act like you're okay with it that's part of being genuine you genuinely need to face your own biases and say like this that's this is not about me right now right right i need to be okay with this right and now. so that clicks into the third thing which is being authentic because right. if the if the therapist is not authentic Rogers says that it won't work. It no. won't work. And that, if you think about it, that's pretty demanding of a therapist. Yeah. To have those things and to share those things with a client. Yeah. I mean, something that I don't think people think of when they think of a therapist is that the therapist has to go in and set a model for authenticity, which is often pretty tiring. I mean, right. you have to go in and be willing to meet the client vulnerability wise to right. be like, this is a safe place. Look, I'm vulnerable too. We're both vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like not that you are there talking about yourself unless it's appropriate, but just that you're setting the stage to be vulnerable right. and showing that it's okay to do that. But you bring up something important, I think, and that is that 
as a therapist, we are called to sometimes self-disclose, but we have to hit a balance Mm -hmm. because I don't know anybody who would want to go in and pay a therapist and then listen to their life for 45 minutes. (laughs) Please don't do that, therapist. (laughs) And yet there are moments where that self-disclosure and being vulnerable might help the client to realize that they're not alone in that or that that's part of that acceptance too. So I want to, Sipsters, think about if you have places in your own life, if you're in therapy, hopefully you're feeling that with your therapist, that you're feeling that they completely accept you and don't judge you and that they have empathy for you and that they're authentic with you. Yeah, hopefully these boxes get checked. Right, If if you're in a counseling relationship where you're not feeling that, I, I hate to say this, but you might want to consider whether or not you're with the right therapist because yeah. that's pretty significant. And I think it's interesting because even though we're talking about, okay, this is Roger's theory and this is humanistic theory. And so then you might be listening and be like, well, but my therapist is a CBT therapist. Or, Which means cognitive behavioral therapy. Thank you. And so they don't have to be that way. Well, that's not really no. true. And that's when I mentioned the like research that I've seen. Basically what the research all comes back to was you have to have a basis of humanism, like right. a basis of like empathy and positive regard. And then you can build different theories on top of that. Exactly. But like a CBT therapist is not going to work if they don't have the building blocks of empathy and regard and authenticity. Exactly. So that last piece about being authentic includes congruence, which was one of the terms that Rogers talked a lot about. And congruence is the idea that we are being authentic to who we are. So in other words, if and, and it goes both for the therapist who should be congruent in their life. Again, it's modeling. <laughs> but especially during therapy, we are working on the client's congruence because And that was one of the big things that Rogers stressed was that what brings us anxiety and depression and dysfunction is that we are not being authentic. We are not having congruence in our life, which means that congruence is that you are on track. You have a realistic picture of who you are and who you want to be, what your values are, and you are living in that way. Right. As I was looking for this or looking through Rogers stuff, I saw this really good diagram that explained congruence that talks about like it's like a Venn diagram so being incongruent you have the your own self-image and then you have your ideal self and when you're incongruent they don't overlap very much Ah. but the more they overlap you feel more congruent right so that's a great way to look at it and then ideally you want the two circles to be completely on top of each other one (laughs) circle which would be self-actualization yes wow let's not do that again It's been a there while since some we, things we tried to harmonize. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We have not had enough champagne to harmonize. <laughs> or we've apparently. had too much. I've had too much. You've not had enough. That might be what's why we didn't harmonize very well. <laughs> Let me say it this way. Um, Rogers identified what he called your real self as the aspect of one's being that is founded in the actualizing tendency. Boy, that sounded very confusing. You know what? When I was reading about him, they continually talk about how we... (laughs) See, I can't even say it when I I look at it. This is a good story. This is really good audio content. Organism. (laughs) Organismic. Organismic. That is very close to orgasmic. It's like in this paragraph like 10 times. And every single time, even when I was you had to read it, it myself, like I was like, orgasmic. No, that's right. Orgasmic. No, that's right. <laughs> and Freud was sitting in the background laughing his yeah, ass off. Just scribbling. <laughs> um, the idea, though, is that we have certain values that we need to live up to, but we need to 
decide what it is that are our values and not what's being put on us by the world or by our parents or by right. our spouse or by whomever. Which is sometimes really hard. Oh, it's really hard. we can assume those are ours. When we grow up as something, we're just like, oh, of course that's what I think. Right. Of course that's just my theory and my idea when actually it's we haven't taken the time to really evaluate it right. and see if that is what we believe. Exactly. One of the things that Rogers talked about was that society is out of sync with the actualizing tendency that we have, which really makes sense right now. Everybody's telling us what we should think and what we shouldn't think and where we should be and what we should do. And I mean, it's always been like that. Yeah. But but, but when things get really kind of out of control, like, I'm sorry, but I do feel like society is a little out of control Listen, right 2020 now. 2020's been... Is not a been lot. an easy year. You know, the other day I was listening to some past episodes. While oh, was, things were simpler while then. I was mowing grass. So, you know, what I listened to was the like the New Year's thing when we were talking about <laughs> resolutions. Yeah, and stuff. Oh, we were no. talking about oh. how 2020 had all the this year potential. vision. Oh, yeah, 2020. We, like, it has so much pressure because we expect it to be this awesome year. <laughs> 20 twice, roll the dice. <laughs> we got double crit fails when we rolled the dice, kids. And I was like, oh my gosh, we had no idea (laughs) what was coming to us in 2020. Yikes. One of the things that he talked about, he used the word ideal self, Mm -hmm. but he didn't mean that in a positive way. He meant that as kind of like a fake self. That's not, that we're trying to live up to this ideal self that's not real. It's the ideal of of the society and of the people around us. It says, by why do we need to match our self-image to the ideal self we don't oh by ideal rogers is suggesting something not real we need to find our real self not our ideal self something that is always out of reach so that ideal self is not something we can be i mean to me it's about meeting somewhere in the middle where like your self-image is probably skewed your ideal self is probably skewed by society right and you need to somehow get in the middle merge them i think it's that we don't really know what the real self is we we can't He said the ideal, the real self he called the I am and the ideal self he called the I should. Okay. So all those things that you feel like you should be doing or you could say shouldn't, but there's that should, those shoulds. We've talked about that before in other episodes that we have those shoulds and shouldn'ts that keep us from being the person that we are called to be. But again, we go back to the way that Rogers believed therapy should go is that we simply allow the client to direct what they need to uncover and what they need to sift through to figure out what are my real values and what are my real goals and who am I really? And how is this, am I actually living like I should be living? Am I being authentic to who I really am? Or who I want to be. Right. I have one client who was probably my client that got this the most. I remember dealing with, he was going through a divorce and which was very difficult. And, and there's a lot of shoulds that come with Oh, there's so many shoulds when you're going through a, a divorce specifically. Shoulds and should nots. Yeah. Especially if you're raised. Like in, I should not get a divorce. <laughs> right. Especially if you're caught up with certain religions and, and the idea that this is just really a should not. You know, and I'm not saying that you should get a divorce. Don't get me wrong here. But what I'm saying is that that becomes a whole separate struggle unto itself besides the whole emotional upheaval of what's going on in the divorce. So I bet Carl's like experience with religion really did something to that. Like I am versus I should, because really, when we look at a lot of religions, there's a lot of rules and a lot of expectations that we should be meeting and a lot of the person we should be based on what the religion says. So I bet he was rebelling against 
against that quite a bit. I bet so too. I think that's significant. So basically, if you were to sit down with Carl Rogers and say, okay, how is a therapist supposed to do this thing? Person-centered therapy. And he He'd would- be like, is that what I'm calling it now? <laughs> so, oh, is I that the I don't think that's what I'm calling thing? it now. <laughs> I'm going to come up with another one. <laughs> you know, all the moving around and the doing new things, that kind of goes with the changing the name thing. It's like he was never quite- Yeah. I don't know. But his, his big thing though, is that life is not, he used the word good life. The good life is a process, not a state of being. I liked that. I saw that too. Yeah. To have a good life. It's not like we're working toward this goal of a good life. It's right. the process of getting there. It's a process of, well, another thing you said is it's a direction, not a destination. So we're always processing what's happening to us. I love, you know what I thought of, Anna? A lot of what I was reading was in our family, and I think we've talked about this before on an episode, I'd created this weird little thing when you guys were younger, and we still talk about it, our life resume. Yeah. That everything that we do, good things and bad things and mistakes and victories and every little experience that we have is part of our life resume. The smallest thing, you know, being in a grocery store and having a conversation with a total stranger is part of your life resume. Mm -hmm. And that's very Rogerian because he was very much into that all of life, everything that we do, all the experiences. It's building, but it's not necessarily building to something. It's just building. Right, exactly. Like What it's building to is self-actualization. It's those two circles. Right, but again, we talked in our, I mean, again, go back to episode 24 of the Maslow episode, which we talked about self-actualization quite a bit because mm-hmm. that's the top of the Maslow pyramid, mm-hmm. that self-actualization was looked at not as, again, not as a state of being, but as a continuous process. Right. Can I read you a quote about the good life, quote unquote? Yes, please. From him. I have gradually come to one negative conclusion about the good life. It seems to me that the good life is not any fixed state. It is not, in my estimation, a state of virtue or contentment or nirvana or happiness. It is not a condition in which the individual is adjusted or fulfilled or actualized. To use psychological terms, it is not a state of drive reduction or tension reduction or homeostasis. Ooh. Which... Especially homeostasis, I, I resonate with that word because homeostasis means staying the same. And everything just stays. Right. Yeah. Which is not how we get better. And it's, it's not, not life. how we change. It's, it's not, not how life all. works. Right. Like, I, I think what he's saying here is we need to be pushing ourselves to be changing for the better. Right. Right. I love it. A lot of times it. we use the homeostasis word when we're talking about a dysfunctional Negative family. homeostasis. Yeah. Like we keep in a negative pattern of homeostasis. Right, right, exactly. So again, if if you were to ask him what, what therapy would be like, he would right away point out that the counselor needs to have empathy and positive regard for the client and be authentic themselves. And that basically the idea is listening. Yeah. It's being there and listening to the client and letting the client direct. Now that doesn't mean that your therapist will never say anything or won't ask you questions Specifically, though, one of their techniques that's the top of the heap of thoughts is is reflecting and reflecting the client's feelings and then reflecting the meaning behind those feelings. And those are the top techniques, basically, of being a humanistic yeah, we're just, therapist. Yeah, we should be charging you guys for a grad degree right now. Yeah, because that's basically this is, this our whole thing. Learned. This is what we learned. In one of the interviews that I was watching from him, he was talking about how he had gone through a period of time where everybody was very critical of what he was doing and that the whole non-directive and therapy... And he just flipped him the double birds and started another center. He said he didn't really care until it got to a point where he noticed that they were, that people were almost doing like a caricature thing of therapy where they had the therapist basically just repeat the last 
So sure. like the client said, like, just repeat it back to them at the end. Right. And that really made him angry because he said, that's not at all what we do. And he said, it really made me angry that they were simplifying it to the point where it didn't make sense. By the same token, though, he said that basically what a good therapist does is that they, when they're reflecting feelings and meanings, they will get to a point where they hit like a trigger word or trigger phrase that then has the client. And you and I have talked about this, Anna, that when you're talking to a client and you say something like, wow, it sounds like you're really angry with your sister. Right. And all of a sudden they get a look on their face and they're like, oh my gosh, I really am. Right. I've been hitting lately, like I've been listening for repeat words where a client will keep bringing up certain like topic or or, or concept or whatever or feeling. When I reflect that back, they're like, have I really been saying that a lot? Uh And I'm like, yeah, Uh I counted eight. Uh (laughs) It's just like, and they don't know. And that's honestly one of the things that I think therapists, I saw this uh, little graphic on Pinterest the other day that was a person, I know I've shown it to you before. It's a person like sitting on a couch, like crying and they have above their head, like this tangled ball of like Mm. a yarn mess. All messed together. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're spilling the yarn out to the therapist who's putting it in three separate balls, like color coordinated and it's like yeah a therapist is just going to take what you're spilling out but is going to reflect it back in a more directed way which exactly. i mean not it's non-directive but you know what i mean <laughs> well one of the things that he said was that when they were early on in, in trying to figure out how to do this kind of therapy one of the things that they did was they recorded their sessions mm-hmm. which reminded me of grad school yeah and um that. He said they learned so much by that because... Carl, don't... No, don't encourage... See, I'm thinking one of our professors might have said that at some point. (laughs) We're like, no! It seemed very familiar to me when I read it. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Yeah. One of my clients sent me the picture that Anna was describing with the therapist. And the therapist has red hair, too. Ah. Anna and I both have red hair, so uh, yeah. That's us. So it's us in a chair. That's cute. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, we kind of, if you think about the way you talk to a friend, if you are a really good friend and you're good at listening to your friends when they're just, they just need to talk. This kind of goes back to the last episode we did about um, how to live with a loved one who has a mental illness, maybe specifically depression. And we talked about how important it is to just be present, to just be there with them. And be patient. And that's basically what a good therapist does. A good therapist is there with you and they're not judging you and they're being empathetic and they're listening and reflecting your feelings then if they also then go on and perhaps use some other techniques from some other theories to help you with building coping skills or whatever that's like a separate issue but the as anna said that platform that we go from because honestly if you go into a therapist and you don't think they're actually listening you and accepting you you don't think they're empathetic to you you don't think they're an authentic person even if they give you the best techniques in the business you're not going to want to listen to them right you're gonna be like What do you know? (laughs) Don't tell me what to do. Yeah. One of the biggest things that um, Roger stressed is that idea of that the client feels safe in this space because that's when they can actually start to unpack what's all going on in there and define their own values and define what it is that they need to work on. That is something I hit with almost every single client like first of all when I make their treatment plans like I have to make a treatment plan for every client almost every single treatment plan I've ever made has had one of the treatment goals be make therapy a safe neutral space for them to talk about whatever they need to talk about basically like to paraphrase and I I stress that to clients too whenever they're expressing I just feel like I can't talk to anyone I feel like I can't 
I often bring up the concept of a, a therapy box. I, I tell the therapy box concept to people when they're like, I just don't know what to do with these feelings. I'm like, okay, when you have that feeling and it feels really big, put it in your therapy box and close the lid. It's not like you're sweeping it under the rug. Keep it in your therapy box until you come here and we can open the therapy box and unpack that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just, this is your place to do that. If you feel like you can't do that anywhere else, you can do that here. Right. And that is why we are humanists. Ding, ding, ding. Person-centered. We are. Can I give you a couple of quotes from Yeah. Actually, both of these quotes are from his 1961 book, On Becoming a Person, which is an amazing book. Yeah. Okay. So the first one says, quote, experience is for me the highest authority. The touchstone of validity is my own experience. No other person's ideas and none of my own ideas are as authoritative as my experience. It is to experience that I must return again and again to discover a closer approximation to truth as it is in the process of becoming in me. Becoming. End of quote. Becoming a person. Life experience. That's what it's about. Here's life another resume. one. Life resume. Exactly. Building your life resume. The second quote says... Another characteristic of the process, which for me is the good life, is that it involves an increasing tendency to live fully in each moment. Again, that's that experience thing. I believe it would be evident that for the person who was fully open to his new experience, completely without defensiveness, each moment will be new. He was big into the new thing. And it's the, like a mindfulness thing. That's really. the anti-homeostasis thing, too. Can I read you a quote? Yes. From probably the same, it's 1961, so it's probably... Yeah, probably the same thing. The very essence of the creative is its novelty, and hence we have no standard by which to judge it. Oh! High art! (laughs) High art! I just want to have lunch with Carl. (laughs) I just just want to brunch with Carl Rogers, that's all I want. (laughs) Just want to brunch with him? But reading this stuff, it validated for me that I I know that I am. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I do that. I, I do that. that I do I that. Am. Yeah. And especially when he was describing in one of those interviews I watched when he was actually describing uh, some of the things he did with some of his clients. And I was like, yeah. that's exactly what I do. Well, I must be okay. <laughs> Carl and I do the same yeah. thing. If I'm doing the Carl thing, we're all right. Mom's cat's trying to eat my computer. <laughs> I they, wish she would. They, they do that. They do. No, she does that. <laughs> she does do that. She's like leaning like. I know. She's like notice? acting like she's not gonna. Yeah. Move along. Get Move out along. Of here. There's nothing to see here. Get out of here. All right. What did we miss? Nothing. Nothing. We hit every single salient point. <laughs> Probably. Probably. <laughs> So to summarize, Carl Rogers is a pretty cool dude. He was pretty rad. I do want to have lunch. He was with him. a busy bee. He I don't think he would have time to have lunch with us. He's, he's got so many things to do. He's got the Illuminati meetings. He's got the APA <laughs> meetings. He's got he's got to go found a center in West Virginia or something. I don't know. Stop in and see his wife and kids. Stop and see, be like, hey, hey, Helen, hey. Okay, I don't know what else to say. I think we're. We're good, man. Except I, I would say this, Sipsters, if you are looking for a therapist, or even if you already have one, to, to kind of hold that um, idea up that they be someone who is empathetic and gives you positive regard, positive regard, no matter what, and is genuine. They are authentic, genuine. Yes, that's that's those are the like, three check boxes you need. Like. Right. Also, just vibe check up. Vibe check up. Vibe yeah, check. Zana would say, yeah, you gotta vibe with your therapist, man. Yeah, because if you don't, you should go to a different therapist. Yeah. Okay, I'm done. I'm done too. Do you want to thank the listeners or should I? You do it. (gasps) Okay. 
Thank you, Sipster, so much for being with us. We always appreciate when you listen, and we hope you enjoy every time, and we hope to see you next time. It's harder than it seems, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm always like, <laughs> this is easier just to thank them. And then I get halfway through and I'm like, oh, God, how, yeah, same how do I thing. do this? We cannot express our thanks enough. <laughs> we do thank you for listening. And we want to remind you that you can find us on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, all at Freudian Sips Pod, as well as our site, of course, FreudianSipsPod.com. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can email us at FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com. Just I don't know. Tattoo that somewhere. Freudian (laughs) Sips Pod. On your forehead. (laughs) We're also on Patreon if you want to support the show. We would love that. We're also there at Freudian Sips Pod at Patreon. Please remember to leave us a nice rating and a review. And if you do that, to take a picture of it and email us so that we can send you that sticker. With the address. With the address. So we can send you your free, free, free Free, sticker. free sticker. They're really cute. They're cool. You'll like them. So please do that because we would love to hear from you. It's always so good to hear from one of our sisters. Our theme music is Sweet of Vermouth by Kevin McLeod, and it sounds like this. Mm-hmm.